This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. We're rejoining our conversation with Mustafa Suleiman on the podcast today. Suleiman's book on AI, The Coming Wave, has got everyone talking about what the future of this technology has in store. Suleiman is co-founder of DeepMind, possibly one of the most advanced AI research businesses in the world. The company was bought by Google in 2014, and Suleiman held a senior position there too. He now heads up a new company called Inflection AI. He recently joined us for a live event at the Tabernacle to discuss his new book, The Coming Wave, and the future implications of the technology. Our host for the evening was Zanny Minton Beddoes, editor-in-chief of The Economist. This is the second of our three-part episode, and if you want to hear the final installment, do head over to intelligencesquared.com slash membership or subscribe to our channel on Apple Podcasts, where you can get the whole listen, ditch the ads, and dig into much more premium member-only content. And if you want to keep up to date with what's going on at Intelligence Squared, do sign up to our newsletter via the episode description. But now let's rejoin Zanny Minton Beddoes with more. So what should governments, or let's be concrete, what should this government, we're in the UK and presumably most people here are, are from London, the, the British government wants to be the superpower of AI, an AI superpower, um, and is having an AI conference on AI safety in November. There's a big focus here. What should this government or indeed other governments be doing concretely to minimize the risks? What should be, is there stuff that should be banned now? Is there rules that, rules of the road that should be put in place? So, so the first thing is that governments have to build technology. You know, we've, we've got into this habit of outsourcing and commissioning third parties to create technology. And I, I think it's really difficult to be able to control what you don't understand. And unless you build it, you don't deeply understand it. So I think that's just the first thing, which in itself is very controversial. When I propose that in government, people sort of throw up their hands and there's a lack of will, there's a lack of self-confidence, there's a lack of belief that government can be a creator and a maker, especially on the technology front. To do that, I think the second thing is that we have to have deeply technical and engineering people, as well as you know, technologists more generally, in cabinet positions and at the heads of every government department. You know, it's, it's pretty crazy to me that we don't have a CTO, a chief technology officer in cabinet, you know, running our big institutions. All of that is outsourced. The challenge is to be able to do that, you just have to pay close to private sector salaries. Again, another highly sensitive topic that no one wants to talk about, should never earn more than the prime minister. You know, to me, this makes no sense. How can we have an open labor market where on the one hand, we're saying to people, you know, go work for whoever you like. And on the one hand, you know, people are being paid 10X. And on the other, we're saying, well, take this huge sacrifice in the name of public service. 
the practical reality is that if that happens over many decades, the net effect is that you have quality of one type over here and another type over there. And that's really what we're facing. We have to confront that reality. It's very difficult for people to accept that we should be paying super large salaries. It creates other issues around how we hold you know, those kinds of you know, people accountable given how much of the public purse they might be earning, etc. But fundamentally, those two things enable a third thing, which is governments have to take risks with regulation. There is a fear that governments act too aggressively or too experimentally and upset the big companies. And, you know, as someone who's on the receiving end of this quite a lot and have been in the past where, I, you know, mistakes have been made, I still think the right thing to do is to give governments a break. Let them make mistakes. Let them make investments that don't work. Praise the experimental governance structures. Have faith in the political process. Participate. Encourage it. Because otherwise, you know, there's just this spiral of decline, this sort of lack of confidence that we can actually do the right thing, that we should do the right thing. And then that ultimately leads to the self-fulfilling prophecy, much like with China. And do you think that your view is the exception in your industry? I mean, the stereotype is a bunch of 30-year-old tech bros who, you know, think the government is useless and who are going to kind of change the world with AI and, you know, we're going to do this. Is that, is that an accurate stereotype? Are you the exception? Uh, I mean, there is a, you know, should we worry about the hubris of people in your industry? I think, you know, that we have polarization everywhere. So the, the stereotype is probably true, but the, the counter is that, you know, you know, we can, we can do it without technology. And I think that's totally wrong. Like, technology is an absolutely necessary but not sufficient part of the process. And I, I think that some people in Silicon Valley, like Silicon Valley does have a tendency to be much more techno-libertarian. There's no question about that. The government is the problem. And the objective is to sort of eradicate the state and run it completely independently. And I'll be honest, there are some very, very influential, very powerful people who have that objective, are building towards that objective with both their companies and their fortunes and you know I'm, I'm very skeptical of them and I you know obviously I'm on the other side of that and, and that's what shapes a lot of the public fear about this that you have a bunch of hyper powerful people who are shaping this um, with, without much with a kind of disdain for the, the state and the democratic process two quick questions for me which I know someone would ask otherwise and then we're going to audience questions the first one is the whole question of the singularity we can't have a conversation about AI without the singularity. Will it happen? When will it happen? I honestly think it's a very unhelpful framing of what's to come. And people jump to this framing because it's easy to point to Terminator and Skynet. But it, it's, it's almost like leaping to the moon before we've even invented the transistor. I mean, it's, a, it's hundreds of years away. I, it, it's really unhelpful. There are many practical, near-term operational capabilities that you can predict, just as I've tried to describe. And you can then use those to wrestle with what are the consequences for the nation state? How does this change our businesses? What does this mean for our governments? So in general, I don't make those predictions. I'm very skeptical that the superintelligence framing is, is useful to us. Yeah. What about the other one that, you know, backyard wannabe AI commentators are always talking about, which is the odds of existential catastrophe? What are the odds that we will wipe ourselves out with this? Again, I mean, I think very, very low. I, I really What's think... What's very low? I, I, I think 
infinitesimally small such that it's not worth putting the in. The reason I ask you that is because I asked one of your, um, someone somewhat similar to you what this was. Oh, very low, they said. And I said, what's very low? Oh, about 5%. Yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> there you go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you think it's infinitesimal? Negative zero. Okay, well that's a good place to end on. All right, we're going to open now to your questions and questions um, from the online audience. Uh, this is a good question from Kitty Haddock, who asks, what will be the impact of all that computer power on our carbon emissions? Or will AI be able to enhance productivity so we reduce carbon elsewhere? Yeah, I, I, another hot take on this. Very low and really inconsequential. The amount of carbon that we spend on our data centers is genuinely minuscule, relatively speaking. Secondly, most of that happens in completely renewable data centers. Google and Microsoft are both entirely 100% renewable. Google actually owns the largest wind farm uh, largest set of wind farms in the world. Um, one of the projects that I worked on whilst I was at DeepMind was making the entire wind farm fleet 20% more efficient. So, you know, right from the outset, they have been focused on this. I'm not saying there aren't other environmental consequences like the use of, you know, galanium and cobalt in the actual chip manufacture and so on. But I honestly think that relative to the benefits that we're seeing and with respect to the absolute cost of carbon per unit of computation, it's very, very small. And, and just to follow up to that, because an argument I have often heard is that the cost of electricity and the access to power will be a constraint on the development of these AIs and their proliferation. Do you also think that's not true? No, I, I, I think that's not true. I mean, I think that's not true. I, I, I think that some data centers will be at the 100 megawatt scale, which is maybe a single digit percentage of a small city's electricity consumption. But we're talking about a very small number at the 100 megawatt scale. I mean, that really is enormous. Nothing like that exists today. So, so don't, don't worry about the carbon consequences of the actual AIs. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Audience, questions here. Yes, lady here in the second row. I'm not quite sure what the. Does, do you get a microphone? Does it work that way? Yeah, it's on its way down. On I its think. way down here. Thank you. Um, uh, Sherry Katu from a uh, number of oh, education. Hey. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, education companies that use AI. Um, my question to you is um, if you think about two industries, say healthcare and education, and you think about um, the applications that, uh, that, that AI has. Could you choose between the two which you would hold um, the most hope for? And um, how should they be thinking about it? Should they be thinking about procuring it? And how do you safely or procure it well? Um, or again, as you said, you could produce it, but some of those organizations may not be in a position to produce it anytime soon. So if you're a procurer, um, how do you do that well, and what are some of the frameworks that should be used for that? 
Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. I mean, on the, I'm probably most excited in terms of the immediate near-term impact about education. I mean, these models are already being used. I think the primary use case of ChatGPT is, in fact, homework help. And people often think, oh, my kids are you know, copying and copy-pasting. But actually, if you actually watch the way they're using these models, and many people use our models, our Pi, for exactly this reason, it's a conversational interaction, much like an enthusiastic teacher might speak to a child about the interest that they have. So the child, or the learner in general, gets to phrase the question in exactly their style, picking on exactly the thing that they're interested in, asking the odd, obscure, poorly phrased, you know, not complete picture type question. And of course, the AI is infinitely patient, provides really detailed, mostly factual information. I mean, it's not always perfect, but it will be perfect. And I think that's an unbelievable um, meritocratic gain for everybody. I mean, I think we need to picture a world in five years' time where the best education in the world, completely personalized, entirely factually accurate, is available to absolutely everybody who wants it on the planet pretty much for free. Which sounds amazing. Um, how do you go from where we are now to that, uh, to that, that world? I think the beauty of, the, um, of these models is that they have an inherent tendency to proliferate and get smaller. I mean, that, this is the upside of proliferation. They spread because everybody wants access. Everybody wants to integrate them. You know, there are so many competing models now. The cost of, um, the, 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 the cost of buying a model per word, so if you're building an app, for example, you'll go to one of the three or four big model creators and you pay per word, that cost has come down 70x since January because we're all competing with each other, right? So that means that you can now take a regular app that you might have been developing for you know, years in its current instantiation and add a conversational widget. In fact, we're doing this at The Economist with the, the Econobot secret project underway. Clearly not so secret anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and you, you, <laughs> and you, integrate, you integrate the conversational um, element into your existing workflow. So you should be able to ask any question in the style and the theme of your brand about the specific content that you have. And it will be like a widget. It's like a plug and play widget that you can put anywhere in the app. And that's what I mean about proliferation. Obviously, everybody finds that useful. And you'll be able to use that tool as a in a low-code or no-code environment. It'll, you know, if, if you see how the image generation models are being integrated into Adobe today, if you're already a user of Adobe, you're, you're using the absolute cutting-edge AI models in a drag-and-drop way, like no training required. You, if you're building a new website today, it's drag-and-drop. You just grab a little widget and plop it over here, and suddenly you have you know, a YouTube player with your video, and suddenly you have a conversational you know, interaction with a language model that is conditioned over all your data. So I think it's important to wrap your head around the idea that this is going to be widely available to everybody. There isn't going to be an access issue. And the risk and harm comes from mitigating the downsides of the bad actors who might use, you, you know, use it for nefarious purposes. But the upsides are incredible. Let's get a go. Lots and lots of hands. Let's get, yes, lady there. But I'm going to get one from online while you get your microphone. And the one from online is a question from Sao Paulo. Gosh, your audience is 
is going from for a long way. Um, Rene de Paula Jr. asks, when you say we will solve this and that, who is this we? Humanity, yeah, corporations, the UN, or Elon Musk? <laughs> I definitely hope it's not Elon Musk. <laughs> I think of it as the kind of the community of researchers, inventors, and creators. There's this sort of dialogue. Sometimes you see snippets of it on Twitter. Sometimes you see it in the research papers that academics publish. You know, you see it in the blogs and the products that big companies produce. There is this sort of unfolding, you know, evolving mold of an ecosystem which is referencing each other, creating and evolving. And so when I say we, I certainly don't mean me at Inflection, um, my current company. I just mean the, the, the ecosystem of humanity. Like we're, we're trending collectively in a direction of invention and creation. Just one tiny bit. Does that ecosystem include Chinese scientists? So 10 years ago, Chinese scientists were not really part of the conversation. They weren't really very relevant. Over the last 10 years, they have launched onto the scene, producing very high quality research, creative research. You know, the old stereotype was that they can only copy and steal. Again, I think a demonization partly by Elon Musk, actually, who was a big proponent of this idea that they were just robbing our intellectual property. And there was some of that. But largely, they were just as creative as us. And they wanted to get access to these tools to build their own businesses and, and provide new products and services for their own citizens for the same reason as we do. And so if you start from that assumption, then of course they're participating in this ecosystem. Of course they're creating incredible models. You know, they have their own constraints with respect to censorship. And that has slowed them down by a little bit. But they're actually not going to be that far behind now. I mean, there are some issues with the export controls, and they don't have access to cutting edge models. But I don't think that's going to hold them back for very long. Interesting. Yes, go ahead. Thanks. This is excellent. Uh, my question is about AI ideas and the people needed to think of them. And if you take someone like Steve Jobs, for instance, he had a very specific person, very specific interests and skills and talent to be able to develop not only technology, but the brand and a point of view on the world that came with that. Do you think AI would be capable of coming up, let's say, with the, the version of uh, the Apple idea now? Will it be in the future, or will it simply be a machination of past information? So I think people have often characterized these AIs as regurgitating their training data, right? Uh, or reproducing whatever they have seen previously. And I think that's a kind of misunderstanding of what they do. They're almost always doing interpolation. The thing I described earlier is predicting the space between two ideas. They're saying, let me mash together these two concepts just like the dog and the yellow spots and whatever, or take your pick of any com combination. And that's creativity. You know, fundamentally, when I invent something, I'm really being inspired by a huge range of different experiences and ideas, and I'm using those to then produce a novel prediction or generation at any given moment, and I'm testing it out and seeing if it's you know, useful or if it makes sense or if it catches on. And then it has a life of its own, and it's sort of independent of me. So I think for the next couple of decades, these AIs are going to aid the human in that process of creation and invention and discovery. They're not going to wander off and have their own agency and do their own thing. I mean, it's just not, it's just not possible. <laughs> the, the capabilities just aren't there and won't be there in the near term to do that, right? And so I think it's going to be the human-AI combo for a good time to come that does the creation. 
Exactly, it's more of the assistant, exactly. The brilliant assistant. Um, right, let's go further back. Yes, gentlemen there, four rows back. Let's get your... Hi. Um, are you seriously trying to suggest that the... Um, no. <laughs> that the, the AI companies are able to self-regulate and no. didn't the banks prove that that is an impossible concept? Oh, the, the banks are highly, highly regulated and so not just by themselves. But look, I'm absolutely not proposing self-regulation. I mean, if, if that came across, then I apologize, I'm wrong. I mean, in the, in the book, I really don't say that. I go to great lengths to say that independent, external, technical expertise is required to do governance properly. I think the practical challenge, as you know, Zani pushed back on me earlier today when we were talking with Yuval, is where are these competent regulators who get the technical aspects? Where is this democratic process that gives us confidence that we can appoint people to, to conduct that kind of oversight? So I think there's, there's some pessimism that they're capable of doing that. That should not mean that we sit around and do nothing in the process. Um, you know, for example, we, I visited President Biden six weeks ago now at the White House with the other six AI companies, Microsoft, Meta, Google, DeepMind, et cetera, et cetera. And we signed up to voluntary commitments that were that are a precursor to regulation, which the White House designed because they realized they can't pass new primary regulation anytime soon. But the voluntary commitments are very material. They, we basically have said publicly, we expose our models to expert independent scrutiny, to red team or stress test, find weaknesses in our own models. Once we identify those weaknesses, we share them with each other and we share them publicly. So in you know, transparency and you know, the open light of day. And we know that that framework, the voluntary commitments, are a precursor to an executive order which is coming from the president sometime in the next few months. They're also the basis for the prime minister, Rishi Sunak's AI summit in November in, in, in Bletchley Park, where you know, many world leaders and all the big tech companies are coming. And those voluntary commitments are gonna form the basis of the discussions for what becomes binding, not just in the UK, but hopefully worldwide. So I'm totally with you that we're not going for a self-regulatory approach. But you don't, you don't think there's a conflict of interest? Well, I, I mean, I, I, there's definitely a conflict of interest. Of course there's a conflict of interest. I mean, we are a profitable, a for-profit company. In fact, I'm a public benefit corporation. So I think it's a kind of an important clarification. Um, it's a new type of company, closer to a B Corp, um, which is a hybrid for-profit, non-profit mission. It means that our directors have a legal obligation to factor in the impact of our activities on the wider world, both the environment and people materially affected by what we do who aren't just our customers. And that doesn't solve all the issues with for-profit businesses and the conflict that you described, but it's a first step in the right direction. And I, I believe that that's how change happens, taking small steps in the right direction. Let's take a question from over there. Yes, gentleman, quite near the back with the white T-shirt. Yep, right there. Oh, hello. Yeah. <clears throat> hello. Yeah. 
Okay, my question to you as an electronics engineer is, should we now focus on the hardware part of it, considering there's a monopoly going on and the concentration of chips to a certain country? The hardware part of it is raising a very big question. We saw it in COVID. Uh, things are really bad when hardware supply goes down. So is this a great time to focus on hardware, considering we are good with software part for now? That, that's a great question. I mean, we didn't really talk about that too much here, but you know, just, just for everyone's benefit, these AI models are trained on GPUs, graphics processing units. So chips that were previously used for gaming, for representing graphics in computers. And we take each one of these chips and we daisy chain them together thousands and thousands of times. We have a computer at inflection which is the size of four football pitches and has 25,000 of these chips daisy chained together. An enormous cluster. It's cost about a billion and a half dollars. Now, all of these chips are manufactured by one company, NVIDIA, who I'm sure people will have heard have seen their share price go up by 350% since January. Their chips are manufactured entirely in one factory called TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, which is obviously in Taiwan. The key component of their chips, of their fabrication facility, are manufactured by one company called ASML, a Dutch company. So the supply chain is, I mean, we can talk about how this happened over 30 years, but extremely narrow. There really are no competing providers that are material at any of those three stages. As a result, the good news is that that means that there are choke points that can be used by regulators to monitor who has access to the critical chips that enable the training of the models, and of course, restrict access to certain people. So I think I loosely alluded to the export controls a minute ago, which is a new piece of legislation or a, a, a rule that the US administration imposed on China um, last year which prevents China, anyone in China, any manufacturer in China, from getting access to the latest version of these chips, which means that they won't be able to train the GPT-5 level model. A number of people have referred to this as a declaration of economic war on China. And so, you know, I think that we have to be very cognizant of that denying them access to that is likely to deliver a significant counterattack on you know, the West. We are hugely dependent on their supply chain in many, many respects. So yeah, chips are absolutely at the heart of this, both in good and bad ways. So if you're focused on a chip company, it's a big bet. It takes a long time to mature, but it has the potential to be the critical component here. Just a follow-up question. Yes. Uh, do you think that open source hardware will help in creating a better setup? right now, considering very few companies are focusing on creating the hardware and all of them are completely non, uh, completely for profit. So something like open source hardware focusing more, helping, will it help us create a better computers, creating uh, better models with less power? Yeah, so I, th I think open source hardware is a serious effort. And just to clarify, I mean, open source elements of hardware design are used in many, many areas. So open RAM, for example, is, a hardware design for 5G masts, which ensures they're interoperable. It means that the software that runs your telephone networks 
actually can run on any type of hardware because the interface is standardized, which is a great thing for competition. There isn't a lock-in between hardware, the builder of the masts, and the software, the people who run the operating system that sits on top of that. The downside of it is that it has tended to be a bit more flaky than the fully integrated side of things. So I think you should be wide-eyed about it. It isn't going to be the panacea to solve all of our problems anytime soon. Let's take another question there. Yes, lady in the fourth row. Hi, thank you both. Um, I'm Jawahir Askari. I lead digital regulation work at Tech UK, which is the uh, digital tech trade body in the UK. Over a thousand members, um, ranging from big tech, DeepMind, Google, Meta, all the way through to cybersecurity providers, SMEs. Um, many of our members are harnessing the really positive impacts of synthetic media, um, but many are becoming increasingly concerned with the rising malicious use of deep fakes. So everything from revenge pornography, undermining digital ID verification, um, fraud, which is a big one. Um, in your opinion, what should companies do now to address the rising um, kind of problem of, of deep fakes? I know you mentioned um, voluntary charters, which we already do with things like fraud, um, but what should we do now? Thank yeah, it, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think the first thing to say is that political parties and political campaigns shouldn't be allowed to use AI generators for their content. I think we should just start by taking that off the table. That's a precautionary principle. There are potentially some downsides to that, but it feels like a safer and sensible thing to do. Right? The second thing to say is that we shouldn't allow the big tech platforms, so Facebook or Twitter or anywhere where there's a broadcast of information, to have digital people counterfeit digital people. Right? So if you you know, have a handle, Zanny on Twitter, for example. Only Zanny should be allowed to represent as Zanny on Twitter. I shouldn't be able to come along, create a perfect synthetic fake of Zanny, and have that, you know, imitate her language. Now, I think that's a reasonably straightforward, sensible thing that all the big tech platforms will commit to. It doesn't address other platforms, right, outside of, you know, the big, big providers. And those tools and techniques are going to be widely available. Again, it's a proliferation question. It's going to be really difficult to say to somebody, well, you know, you're using synthetic media to generate a new product design or a new fashion outfit or all these other good uses. Um, you're not allowed to have it because there's a risk that you're going to be able to generate some you know, deep fake. I think we should also be like wide-eyed about how quickly we adjust to the risks. You know, like back in you know, 20 odd years ago, People were like, well, we'll never be able to do financial transactions on the internet because there's so much fraud. Right? We're going to be inundated with fraudulent activity. We do tens of trillions of dollars of transactions. It's completely transformed our world. And we have a minuscule amount of fraud. And it's a constant back and forth. You know, likewise with spam detection. Right? We, we, everyone thought we were going to be inundated with spam. We're going to produce all this automated content. Increasingly, the next threat is that um, you know, older people are being tricked by AIs that you know, can imitate the voice of, say, your daughter or child 
who you know, might be asking you for a loan or something. There's this con man scam type thing, which is now a little like, more, more possible and more capable. Of course, that's a new threat vector that causes real harm. On the flip side, spreading knowledge and information about it, there's a very, very simple defense, which is just to say, you know, never provide access you know, to my account over the phone, right? I'll never you know, call you out of the blue asking for that. So we adjust. We adapt. And it, you know, it doesn't mean that we can eliminate all of the harms, but it means that like net-net, we just have to be more resilient and more focused on adaptation. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. To hear this episode in full, head to intelligencesquared.com slash membership or click the try free or subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to get our newsletter straight into your inbox, attend some of our live events, then once again, head to intelligencesquared.com.